anti-Semitism is on the rise today in the world. In Germany, I just read this week, uh, their security services registered 3,028 anti-Semitic crimes in 2021, the highest official count since they started keeping track of that figure. A survey of Germans show that anti-Semitic sentiments is deeply rooted in mainstream society. Many think that the Jews have too much financial and economic power and thus are the cause of all the world's problems and thus to be opposed. But you know, Germany is just one of many countries in the world in which hatred of the Jews has grown over the past decade. Russia recently accused Israel of backing the neo-Nazis in the Ukraine. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said in an interview that Adolf Hitler had Jewish blood and that most rabid anti-Semites tend to be Jews. A statement that is patently false. Jews did not murder themselves in the Holocaust. And to accuse the Jews themselves of anti-Semitism is probably the lowest level of racism. In 2021, the American Jewish Council conducted a survey of both Jews and non-Jews in regards to the state of anti-Semitism here in the United States. And when asked, how much of a problem, if at all, do you think anti-Semitism is in the United States today? 90% of the American Jews said it was a problem, compared to only 60% of the general population. When asked, how familiar are you with the BDS movement? 59% of American Jews were very or somewhat familiar, compared to only 21% of the general public. And when asked of those that were familiar with it, do you view the BDS movement as anti-Semitic? 82% of the American Jews said mostly or somewhat uh, were supporters of anti-Semitism in comparison to only 63% of the general public. The BDS movement, by the way, is a boycott, diverse divestment and sanction movement that's led by the Palestinians to promote boycotting divestment and economic sanctions against Israel. Online you can find a list of companies that they want you to boycott because of their investments there in Israel. Many of the Islamic countries today are bent on the destruction of the Jewish state. Iran is hoping to develop within the next year a nuclear weapon that they intend on using against Israel. And many of them are bent on driving the Jewish people into the sea. But may I say to you this morning that anti-Semitism is not a new phenomenon. It is often referred to as the oldest hatred in the world going back to the very beginning of the Jewish people. Satan, God's adversary, has a profound hatred of God spanning back to the time of his declaration of supremacy and his fall into sin. He has, from the very beginning, opposed God and anyone associated with God. 
And throughout human history, Satan has focused all of his efforts towards persecuting the people of God. It began very early, began back with Abel, who was the righteous, obedient son of Adam and Eve. Satan prompted Cain to kill him. John reveals in 1 John 3 verse 12 that Cain was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, but his brothers were righteous. And so Cain was of the wicked one. He was controlled by Satan. When God provided another righteous line through Shem, Satan sought to pollute the gene pool of the human race by producing a race of people that were half demons, half humans, when the sons of God cohabited with the daughters of men, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And God destroyed the superhuman race by the universal flood in the time of Noah. Satan, however, has reserved his special hatred for Israel and the Jewish people. For it would be through them that the Messiah would come. After Joseph's death, the Israelites became enslaved in Egypt. And in that place, the fate of the nation and its human deliverer hung by a slender thread because all the baby boys were to be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. Now you remember what happened. God preserved the life of Moses, who became the deliverer for Israel in the Exodus. During the period of the Judges, Satan used Israel's pagan neighbors in an attempt to destroy them. And yet God preserved his people in all of those assaults, raising up judges or military leaders to rescue them from their oppressors. Later, Satan attempted to use Saul to murder David and thus eliminate the messianic line. And during the days of the divided kingdom, the messianic line twice hung by a thin thread of a fragile child. Satan moved Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, when he died to destroy all the royal heirs of the line of Judah. Second Chronicles chapter 22. But, jo- but Joash, the youngest son, he was only one year old, he was hidden for six years in the house of God while Ahaziah reigned over the land. And when he was seven years old, he became the king. Can you imagine that, a seven-year-old being the king? I can't. Still, later, Satan inspired Haman to undertake the genocidal mission against the Jewish people. But God used Esther to save her people from disaster. See, since the beginning of time, Satan has been after destroying the Jewish people. And since the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70 to the present time, the Jewish people have been dispersed throughout the world, and every place they've landed, they have experienced persecution and suffering. One should never forget the sufferings of the Jews during World War II and the Holocaust, in which six million Jews perished. But may I say to you this morning, the suffering and the persecution inspired by Satan against the Jewish people, that what they've experienced thus far, is going to pale in comparison to what they will one day experience during the tribulation period. Because in the middle of the tribulation, 
As we saw the last time we were in this book, before Mother's Day, in the middle of the tribulation, Satan, or the dragon, and his de- with his demonic hosts, are going to lose the cosmic war with Michael, the archangel, and his heavenly army. And as a result, Satan is going to be cast down to the earth. He's going to be forever banished from the throne of God. His days of accusing the brethren is going to be over. He's not going to have access to the throne of God. He's going to be confined here to the earth. And while at that time there's going to be great joy in heaven, there is going to be hell here on earth. For Revelation 12, verse 12 states, Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that his time has a short time. See, the devil is going to be full of great wrath. Upset he lost the battle. Upset that he's been banished from heaven. Perhaps upset because the saints in heaven are all rejoicing that he's gone. He's mad at all the human beings for they bear in their bodies the image of God so that every place he looks, he sees something of God. But he also knows his time is short. He knows that he only has three and a half years before he's going to be incarcerated in the abyss for a thousand years. His days are numbered. The opportunity has to disrupt God's plan and to prevent the coming of Christ's kingdom here upon the earth is very short. So where does he start? Where does he target first? The answer is found in verse 13 of Revelation 12. You notice that what your text says. It says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. When the dragon saw, or when Satan saw that he had been cast down to the earth, he begins to persecute the woman who gave birth to the male child. He focuses his attention on persecuting the woman. Now, who is the woman with the male child that the devil or Satan persecutes? Well, I think their identity is is revealed, the identity of both, the the woman and the male child, are revealed in the beginning of of Revelation 12, beginning of verse 1. Follow along as I read. Revelation 12, verse 1. says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then begin with child, then begin with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Being with child. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Now, the first thing that John saw in this vision was a great sign. The first of seven signs that are in the book of Revelation. A sign describes a symbol that points to something that's real, a reality. The literal approach for interpreting scripture allows for the normal use of symbolic language. 
But we understand that it points to something that's real, actual. And in this case, the description shows that the woman John saw was not an actual woman, but rather a symbolic mother. Now, who is the mother and who is the child? Well, those, there are many today that believe that the church replaces Israel in God's prophetic program. And they believe that the book of Revelation records the history of the church in its struggle with Satan and evil, believing that the woman is, they believe that the woman is the believing covenant messianic community or the church, the new Israel composed of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And so they believe that the whole intent of this passage is to explain the persecution of the believing community, not the persecution of Israel or the Jews as a whole. And so they teach that as the woman is in the throes of childbirth, the emphasis is on her pain and suffering, and the birth does not picture the physical birth of Jesus Christ, but rather the travail of the community of believers from which the Messiah has arisen. And so the male child is not Jesus Christ per se, but rather Jesus with the community of believers. Now, I think this is a rather torturous interpretation of this text. The believing covenant messianic community, the church giving birth to the Messiah, and to the believing covenant community, the church. I think it's better to look at this at face value. What does it say? And to look at it in light of the literal, normal, the scriptural, comparing scripture with scripture to what it says. The woman, I believe here, symbolizes the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. The woman is described in Revelation 12, verse 1, as clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now this description of the woman is reminiscent of a dream that God gave to Joseph as a young lad back in Genesis 37. Genesis 37 verse 9 says, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now the sun and the moon in the woman's clothing refers to Jacob and Rachel, Joseph's parents, and the twelve stars on the woman's crowd clearly relate to the twelve sons of Jacob, or in other words, the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation. The Old Testament a picture of, of, the, of Israel was the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the Old Testament pictures Israel as a woman, the adulterous wife of the Lord. Jeremiah 3.20, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. The prophet Hosea was commanded by the Lord to marry a harlot, and God used Hosea's marriage to illustrate his faithfulness to adulterous Israel. 
Hosea 2.19 says, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And so the woman, with with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars, is Israel, is the Jewish people. And she gives birth to the child, the male child, being the Messiah, I believe, Jesus Christ. Jesus was of the lineage, of Jewish lineage. According to Matthew 1.1, he was the son of Abraham. He was a member of the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of David. He fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 9, verse 6, where it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That the male child refers to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, I believe is clear, from the description that it's given here in Revelation 12, that Satan attempts to destroy him during his earthly life and to keep Jesus from doing his saving work. He was ready, as the text says, to devour her child as soon as he was born. You remember what happened as soon as Jesus was born? Right after his birth, Satan put into the mind of Herod to kill all the baby boys two years and younger in Bethlehem in hopes of killing Jesus and the Messiah. That plot failed. At the offset of Jesus' ministry, Satan tempted him to mistrust God and to obtain his inheritance, which the Bible says is the kingdoms of this world, to obtain that inheritance without having to go to the cross. Indeed, again, Satan failed. On numerous occasions, beginning with Jesus' home crowd of Nazareth, Satan incited them to kill Jesus by throwing him over the cliff. But Luke 4.30 says, Then passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. And the reason was, is because his hour had not yet come. And so Satan tried over and over and over again to get rid of the Messiah, to destroy him. And even in, when, when seeming victory at the cross was in reality the ultimate defeat for Satan because through it says he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews 2.14 That the male child refers to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, I believe is also clear by the added description that it says that he was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Rule all nations with all. It was prophesied that the, of the Messiah. In Psalm 2, he says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The rod of iron is an instrument of judgment. The Messiah will come and destroy all nations and in his kingdom have dominion over the nations that enter into to populate his kingdom. He will swiftly and immediately judge sin and put down all rebellion. He will rule with a rod of iron. And I believe that the male child refers to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is also clear by the description of what happens after his death. For our text says that her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
between Christ's incarnation and his coronation is his exaltation. Having paid the redemptive price for our sins on the cross, God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven, where today he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Of him, the writer of the Hebrews proclaimed to being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. Why? His work is done. You know, at the evening time, I sit down when my work is done. Put up my feet and my lazy boy. The work is done. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father because his work was done. He was the one who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. My friends, Jesus Christ today is our exalted Lord. He is our heavenly high priest, who is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He is the head of the church, and as such directs the affairs of the church from heaven. He is right now preparing a place for us in heaven, and one day is going to return to receive us to himself, that where he is, that's where we're going to be as well. And so the male child, I believe, is Jesus Christ, not the church. It's not the believing covenant community. The woman is Israel, the Jewish people, who from them came the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The believing covenant community did not give birth to the believing covenant community, but the Jewish nation gave birth to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the male child. Jesus today is in heaven. Israel or the Jewish people are left here on earth, and they're going to play a major role during the tribulation period. In fact, the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years of God's 490-year plan to prepare the Jewish people for their Messiah, it centers on Israel. So Satan, or the dragon, after being expelled from heaven, banished here to earth, will turn all of his fury and all of his wrath upon the woman who gave birth to the male child. And since he could not stop Jesus Christ from going to the cross and defeating him and his demonic cohorts, and since he could not stop Jesus' ascension to heaven and Christ receiving the seven-sealed scroll, which is the title deed to the earth and the kingdoms of this world, Satan will instead assault the Jewish people, Jesus' brethren, according to the flesh. For if he's able to destroy the Jewish people, then the Jewish nation cannot be saved as prophesied. For there will be no Jews remaining when Jesus Christ returns as at the end of the tribulation to look on me, as it says in Zechariah 12, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. The prophecy, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, it says, so all Israel will be saved, as it's written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I will take away their sins. See, if Satan is successful 
If he's successful in annihilating the Jewish people, there will be no one with whom God can ratify that new covenant relationship promised to Israel in Jeremiah 31. If Satan is successful, there will be no Jews alive to enter the millennial kingdom, and thus he will thwart Christ's plan to rule on the Davidic throne over the house of Israel forever. So during the three and a half years of the tribulation, the last part, known as the Great Tribulation, Satan is going to pull out all stops. He's going to give maximum effort to persecute and destroy the Jews. Now may I say to you, he will do so mainly through the other members of the unholy trinity, and that being the Antichrist and the false prophet. When the Antichrist comes on this world scene and ascends to power, he appears as the good guy. He appears as a good guy. In fact, he is the first horseman of the apocalypse. We saw the rider on the white horse. He's going to be the man of peace. And so he will initially rule by diplomacy. Daniel 9.27 reveals that he, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The many here are the Jews who will enter into alliance with this leader of the Western world. He will offer to them security, peace, and protection. And during the first half of the tribulation, the nation of Israel will enjoy relative peace. But something happens at the middle of the tribulation which turns the good guy into the beast of Revelation 13. And I believe what happens is the banishment of Satan from heaven, and he in turn will indwell the Antichrist. Just as Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, it says that of him that Satan entered into him, so the Antichrist is going to be satanically controlled. Revelation 13, verse 2, states that the dragon gives him his power, his throne, and great authority. So that in the middle of the tribulation period, or after three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to break his covenant that he made with the Jewish people. And Daniel 9.27 reveals, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifices and offerings. On the wings of abomination he shall make desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined to be poured out on the desolate. See, this satanically controlled Antichrist is going to put an end to the sacrifices. Both the blood and non-blood sacrifices or offerings. Temple's going to be rebuilt uh, before the tribulation, I believe, begins. And then they're going to be having religious freedom again. But he's going to suspend temple worship. No longer will there be religious freedom for the Jews to practice their faith with sacrifices on the altars at Jerusalem. And can you imagine, for one minute, the psychological effect that will have upon the Jews? You know, for centuries, they have waited for the rebuilding of the temple and the resumption of sacrifices. And for at least three and a half years, they celebrated because they were able to do so. They had the religious freedom. They were on the spiritual highs. They once again worshipped God in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. And then suddenly, someone whom they had trusted whom they had entered into a covenant with, offered them protection, religious freedom, he suddenly turns on them, suspends all sacrifices and offerings. But it doesn't stop there. For note again what it says in, in Daniel 9, 27, the last part of the verse. 
It says that on the wings of abomination he shall make desolate, even until the consummation which is determined to be poured out on the desolate. The Antichrist is going to do something so abhorrent to the Jews that it will cause them to abandon the temple and to make it desolate. So abhorrent that they will even refuse to enter that area again. Now may I say to you, it happened once before. Happened earlier. Jewish history during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, also known as the Antichrist of the Old Testament. Out of revenge, Antiochus turned on Jerusalem, and Daniel 11.31 states that forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now what happened historically? Antiochus sends in an army of 22,000 soldiers into Jerusalem who appeared to be on a peace mission. But once there, they turned on the people, killing many of them, plundering the city, and setting it on fire. He was in the, in the process of Hellenizing the people, making them Greeks. And to speed up that process, he ordered the desecration of the temple. An altar to Zeus, Olympias, was set up on the altar of burnt offerings outside of the temple. And on December the 16th, 167 B.C., a pig, a pig was offered on that altar. It was the abomination of desolation. You know, Jews have nothing to do with, with pigs or swine. And that was the ultimate insult. And thus, the Jews deserted, deserted the temple area. Now, what will the, what will the Antichrist do? Is he going to offer a pig? I don't think so. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4 says of the Antichrist, he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The Antichrist will not only will set himself up in God's temple, he's going to erect his throne there in the Holy of Holies, and he's going to claim to be God. And he will demand that everyone worship him. In fact, Revelation 13, verse 8 says, For all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the land slain from the foundation of the world. And, and Revelation 13, 14 talks about an image of the beast that's going to be made in honor of the Antichrist. And perhaps the image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived, ordered by the false prophet to be made, perhaps that image will be erected in the temple area too. Now may I say to you, the erection of the abomination of desolation is the cue, it's the cue for the Jewish people to not only refuse to enter the temple area, but also the cue for them to get out of town to get out of town because the Antichrist is going to turn on them and he's going to seek to destroy them. For Jesus warns, Matthew 24, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in the Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. 
And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be, and unless those days were short, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be short. Now Jesus says to them, get out of town, quickly. Don't even go back and pack a suitcase. You flee to the mountain. Pregnant women and nursing mothers, you're going to be especially vulnerable. It's going to be hard for you to flee quickly. And so severe will be the peril that God will intervene to save the elect from total destruction. Now why? Why must they leave town in a hurry and flee? The answer is found in Revelation 12, verse 13. Says there, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The Greek word there translated persecuted literally means to pursue, to chase, or to hunt. It is used in the New Testament of pursuit with hostile intent, and thus the implication can mean to persecute. Paul describes his own pursuit as a Pharisee. In persecuting the early church, he, he states, And I punished them, often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He pursued them. He went after them. And even more enraged than Paul, the devil, knowing his time is short, pursues the Jews, seeks to completely annihilate them so that Christ could not set up his kingdom here on the earth. And so the Jewish faithful run to the mountains or to the wilderness to escape the satanically controlled Antichrist. This unleashes the greatest anti-Semitic attack ever. Now, the fleeing Jews are going to be in need of assistance. Any assistance they can get in God's providence, there will be some people who are going to help them. Jesus reveals in Matthew 25 that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he's going to separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on the right hand, goats on the left, and the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, And saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now we'll look at this a little bit later, this this judgment that's going to end the end of the... the, um, uh, tribulation when Jesus Christ returns in his glory, uh, the, the separation of the sheep and goats. But may I say, in the Jews' time of peril and flight, they will receive assistance from individual Gentiles who will demonstrate their genuine faith in Christ by their willingness to help these persecuted Jews. The Christ's brethren, they'll give them food, they'll give them clothing, they'll give them shelter, they'll give them protection, they'll move them along the way. They'll be rewarded at the end, by entrance into Christ's kingdom. 
But may I say, these fleeing Jews are also going to receive some supernatural help. For note what our text says, beginning verse 14. It says, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the presence of the serpent. The Jews' flight will be aided by two wings of a great eagle. Some say here this is a um, reference to airplanes. I don't think so. I think it's a reference, though, to God's supernatural help. For the imagery of these two wings of a great eagle, I believe, is taken from Exodus 19, verse 4, where God says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Just as God delivered the Jews from their bondage in Egypt, so God's going to deliver the Jews in the tribulation from the pursuit of the Antichrist. Wings in Scripture depict God's protection. Psalm 57, verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. Under his wings I am safely abiding. That's where that comes from, that text for that hymn. Now the exact location to where the Jews will flee is not known. Revelation 12, 14 says the place of safety is in the wilderness, whereas Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 15, urges them to flee to the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. Whether it's the wilderness or surrounding, it's a desolate place. Some have suggested it might be Petra, the fortress capital of Edom, south of the Dead Sea. The city of Petra has a narrow access which can be easily blocked, but which opens into a very large canyon capable of caring for many, many thousands of people. We don't know the exact location, but we do know that God is going to supernaturally care for the Jews there. He says in the text that he will nourish them for a time and times and a half a time. That is for three and a half years. He's not going to protect them. He's going to provide for them food and necessities of life. This will be the last three and a half years. And it's going to be during that last three and a half years of the tribulation when the Antichrist, the false prophets, will have instituted their economic sanctions on the world. Revelation 13, 16 states, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hand and on their forehead, that no one may buy or sell except one has the mark or, or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so without the mark of the beast, these Jews cannot buy, they cannot sell, and thus they cannot buy food and supplies. But God, in the past, has provided for his people. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, what? God provided manna, bread from heaven. They said, what is it? That's the Hebrew word for manna. Manna. It's manna. He provided them quail. He provided them water from the rock. And certainly it's not incredible to think that during this time when God is pouring out some miraculous, devastating judgments on the earth, that he is not able to miraculously provide for his people, the Jews, during this time. And so he's going to protect them, he's going to provide for them, and he's going to protect them from the very presence of the serpent. Satan might know where they're at, where they're hiding, but he's unable to get to them due to God's protection of them. And so frustrated by the defeat, Satan will launch his second assault against the Jews that's recorded in verse 15 of Revelation 12. Follow along as I read. 
says, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Now, since the serpent is not an actual snake, but a symbolic representation of Satan, and so the water that spews out of his mouth is probably not actual water, but rather represents, I believe, an invading, destroying army. Speaking of the attack by the Egyptian forces against the Philistines. Jeremiah 47 verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, water rise out of the north and shall be an overflowing flood. They shall overflow the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell in it within. Then shall, men shall cry and all the inhabitants of the land shall wail. Satan, this is, this is picturing the armies of the Egyptians. And Satan's attacking forces will sweep towards the Jews' hiding place like a giant, large flood. But just as God sheltered the Jews from the Antichrist's initial onslaught, so he's going to defeat this second assault, aided by the earth opening up and swallowing this army flood. The imagery reminds us of how Moses described God's destruction of Pharaoh's army in Exodus 15, verse 12, where it says, You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Now, perhaps one of the frequent earthquakes that will happen during the tribulation period will cause the ground to open up and swallow Antichrist's forces. Now, stymied again and totally frustrated by his inability to destroy the woman, the Jews, Satan, and the Antichrist will turn their focus of his anger against a new target. Verse 17 says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimonies of Jesus Christ. Now, who are the rest of her children? Some have identified this with the 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists. Others believe that it's the Gentile tribulation saints. Perhaps it's best just to take it as an all-inclusive phrase, referring to all those who during this time are going to name the name of Christ. These are believers it's evident by the added description, for they are those that keep the commandment of God and the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is not testimony about him, but rather the testimony that Jesus gave, the truths of God's word. They're keeping him. That the, they are saints is clear from Revelation 14, verse 12, where it says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, unlike his attempt to destroy the woman or the Jewish people, the Antichrist will be successful in its pursuit of believers in Christ during this time. Because Revelation 13, 7 states, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe and tongue and nation. The outcome of the Antichrist's pursuit against the followers of Jesus Perhaps it's recorded in Revelation 7, where it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all the tri nations, tribes, people, and tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And when asked for an explanation as to who this great multitude was, the elders said to John, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
And so while God supernaturally protects the Jews from the Antichrist assault, he does not do so for the rest of her children, for many of them are going to be martyred for their faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. But may I say, like the first attempt by Satan, two attempts, in the end his final attack will ultimately fail, for when the seventh trumpet sounds, says there is a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All of Satan's efforts to thwart God's plans and to prevent Christ's kingdom from being established are doomed. The Lord Jesus Christ will be triumphant in the end. He's going to be triumphant. He will reign on this earth over the kingdoms of this world and the surviving tribulation saints, both Jews and Gentiles, will enter into his glorious kingdom. We'll be there with him as well. Now what's in here for us, for you and I today? I think the way in which God protects and provides for the Jewish people during the tribulation should encourage us as we face our uncertain times and perhaps persecution in the future. The same God who will deliver them, provide and protect them is the same God we love and serve today. I'm reminded of the words in Second Peter 2 where Peter writes, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He knows how to deliver the godly. Deliverance comes in many different forms though. Protection from physical harm, protection from ungodly men, protection from satanic forces, from evil, from temptation. Ultimate deliverance, though, will come with death when we will forever be free from satanic forces. We'll be in the presence of the Lord. But the God we serve can deliver us today. And may I say the God who we serve can only deliver us today. He can provide for us, even in supernatural ways. I like the words of Jesus in Matthew 6 where he says, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and your body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns that your Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to a statue? You know, as I sit out in my sunroom and I watch the birds around me, God's taking pretty good care of them. There's some pretty big birds that, that, that come to see me. Uh, and so God feeds them. He goes on to say, what, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He goes on to say, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God knows. He knows what we have need of. He knows what we have need of. And he can provide even in miraculous ways. And God also protects us from danger and from harm. Our lives are indeed in his hands. 
No matter what we might face in life, he's with us. He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us, but that Jesus will be with us to the end of the age. And so while we might in the future face persecution for our faith in Jesus Christ, we can rest assured that the God who will protect and provide for the Jews during the tribulation is the same God, I believe, who will provide and protect us as well.